time and learn something today. Walk. walk. If you have the authority to tell people to walk, you are a little bit of a king, right? You're a little bit of a king. Um, Hey, today, before we get started with this kingdom thing, I have two quick announcements. First of all, two weeks from today, we will be taking communion together. Um, So today is what? January 8th. On January 22nd, we'll be having communion here at Waterway. So uh, you can begin to prepare yourself for that. And then number two, on the last week of this month, January 29th, I will be uh, with a number of fellows up in Clinton County, Pennsylvania. We have a men's boot camp. There's still room. If any of you men would like to come along um, for our men's weekend, it runs Thursday night till Sunday morning. Um, You can find information about that at wildgooseevents.com. We are sponsored by Wild Goose Events. It's not necessarily a waterway church event. But I, um, I could use, if any of you has an extra four-wheeler sitting around that you don't need that weekend, um, I could use one for a grown man who will not treat it harshly. So uh, if, if you can fulfill that request, you can talk to me later. But today, I want to talk a little bit with you about a little bit more of this kingdom of God thing. And, and last week... For those of you who were last week, here last week, you'll remember I showed you a video of a water bottle that I found in my garage on Christmas Eve morning. That was one of those really cold mornings, like single digits. And just in case you weren't here, this was the video, okay? Um, I had a number of conversations about this this week. That's my hand holding, actually, uh, this bottle of water. And watch what happens. It was still a liquid, even though in the garage it was like, 10, 12 degrees. It hadn't frozen yet, and you could see the bubble there at the top, right? But all of a sudden, it just froze in my hand. I had never seen that before. I've been around this world for a little while. I know that water freezes. I know that ice thaws, but I had never seen it quite that dramatically. So I talked about that with you guys last week, and I had a number of conversations about it this, this past week. One of those was with Melanie's brother. Um, as, we, uh, as we sat at our New Year's Day lunch eating pork and sauerkraut, he explained to me the science behind why this happened. Um, one of you actually sent me a video this week. Thank you, Kyle Neff. Where's Kyle? He's there in the, the Neff family is there in the back somewhere. Kyle actually reproduced that strange feat and showed me how uh, in his hand, in his house with his water, it also froze instantaneously like that. One of the conversations I had was with a group of pastors, uh, many of whom were much older than I um, and had never seen that kind of thing happen before in quite that kind of way. But here is a conversation that I had that I can share with you. It actually came in a text last Sunday afternoon from one of you, and it said this. Quote, you observed the spontaneous freezing of supercooled water. I was able to understand that easily. The text went on. Two things you can know for sure. The inside of the bottle was very smooth, and the water was close to pure. Otherwise, there would have been nucleation sites for crystal formation to occur. And that is where I began to get lost. I had to look up a nucleation site, and by the way, this was, this was almost quoting what my brother-in-law had told me, but I wasn't going to ask him to explain it to me. A nucleation site, a nucleation site is any kind of a tiny particle, could even be an air bubble, 
that is kind of a gathering, in my words, kind of a gathering spot for particles changing from one state to another. And this is what happens that forms clouds. In the, in the sky, there's water vapor, and we know this, but if there's some pollution or if there's some dust, then clouds tend to form around that, right? The water kind of draws, and then clouds grow up. Well, the same thing happened in that water bottle that I was holding. It was liquid, and it was colder than 32 degrees, but because the inside of the bottle was so smooth and because apparently Deer Park water is quite pure, they are not sponsoring this sermon today, but perhaps (laughs) maybe they'd throw in a four-wheeler. I don't know. (laughs) But apparently the water was very pure and the, the wall of the bottle was very smooth. There was nothing for the ice to start around. So it was able to get much colder than what we might expect. There was no nucleation site. Okay, but the text went on. And this is how this person explained it to me. They said, by agitating the super cool water, and you could see that I was just kind of rolling it in my hands. Some of you reproduce this by tapping the water or shaking it, right? By agitating the super cool water, you aligned enough water molecules to trigger the exothermic process of crystallization, in which the water transitioned from a metastable condition to a stable condition. In other words, By just moving it, a little bubble or something happened or even just those water molecules molecules now smashed together just quickly enough that there was something for the freezing to begin around and then it all froze, right? That's an exothermic process. It means water molecules give off heat as they slow down and move from being a liquid to a solid. This person told me that it was a metastable condition. Supercooled water is in a metastable condition. It can only stay like that for a while because typically, if water is colder than 32 degrees, it will freeze, right? But for a little while, it could stay in a metastable condition, but eventually it froze, putting itself in a stable condition. You would expect water in that temperature to be frozen, right? Okay, that water in that bottle was somewhat stable, but once it was shaken up just a little, A nucleation site was produced that pushed it over the edge, so to speak, to become ice, which is what H2O is supposed to be at that temperature. Nice bit of trivia, right? But church, I think we stumbled onto a powerful example of one of the ways that God has worked in history. You know, I hope, and and if you're new to this whole Jesus thing, let me tell you that humans are created for perfect fellowship with God. We are created to enjoy what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the beginning was walks with the Lord in the cool of the day, being able to speak face to face and directly. That's what humanity was made for. That's what God intended for us. That is the stable state that God made. It was how things should be. But humans sinned. All of us have sinned. But Adam and Eve, especially at the beginning, they sinned. They they initiated sin for the world and they ruined that perfect fellowship with God and put all of humanity since then at a place where it seems like things are not quite right. We are in a metastable condition. We're all sort of like an unfrozen bottle of water in a single degree temperatures. It's still water, but something is not quite as it should be, right? And you can feel this, can't you? I mean, you are in this world, you're born into this world, your flesh and your bones and your body, you've you've adapted well to the world in which you live, but you can tell, can't you, that things are not quite as they should be? This is why we have these emotions. This is why people write songs like, it is well with my soul. Why? Because even though things are a terrible mess in so much of life, with God, I can find stability. 
We're all sort of like that unfrozen water. Just We recognize the tension of that. Even as we follow God, we can recognize the tension of being in this broken world. We're intended to be close with God with nothing in between, but the reality is, is that is that sin has marred our relationship with God. And even those of us who are saved, we recognize that we still don't quite see God face to face. We are still looking forward to the second coming of Christ when we'll be able to see him directly and and not have to endure all of this other tragic static, right? And we can see this in all of humanity. There have been over the years, over the centuries, and throughout the millennia, there have been tremendous advances in science, in technology, even in theology, as we learn more and more about ourselves and our world and our God. But things are not quite right, are they? Humanity is broken. Not living with God face to face as we were designed for. Even in the time of Jesus, this was obvious. God knew this, so what did God do? Well, chemically speaking, he provided a nucleation site. By sending Jesus into the world, God sent a disruption that became a rallying point for everything to change. The change didn't immediately affect the whole system, like in my little wattle bottle that I held in my hand, but can't we testify to the fact that lives have been changed by God throughout Jesus? Can't you? Can't you testify that though the world is a mess, though the system is a mess, and though everything in you seemed unstable at one point, there was a time that Jesus came and changed you And now he is building you and growing you and sanctifying you. You are becoming closer to the Lord. But can't you point to a time where God helped in a way that you could see and feel? There was a nucleation site. We can testify. So many of us can testify to this. This is why we're here, because we've experienced it. We felt it. How many of you can say that you went at one time or another from unstable to stable because Jesus shook things up in your life just enough to change who you are and bring you into fellowship with God? We call that salvation, but isn't this your reality, church? I mean, isn't this why you bother? And some of you who are here and you haven't, you haven't yet felt that big change, aren't you here because you're a little hungry for it? Aren't you looking for something to be different? Aren't you looking for some kind of peace to to step in to your life of turmoil and tragedy? Aren't you looking for some answers to the questions that just seem to boggle your mind? Aren't you looking for reasons why this life is even worth it? That's what Jesus does, but not everybody's acknowledged this, and not everybody has then received the change. Through December, we talked about the birth of Christ. We talked about his flesh and blood entrance into the world of humanity. I was reading Matthew 4 the last couple of weeks, thinking about after Jesus grew up to become a man, what was his life like? How did he live out this change that he was bringing? Matthew 4 shows Jesus stepping onto the stage, so to speak, shifting from a somewhat obscure young man representing big promises to an actual ambassador for God. And Matthew 4 says this. Matthew tells the story about Jesus. He would have been about 30 years old. This is before his his public ministry and teaching even started. says in Matthew 4 that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him. And I would invite you to read Matthew chapter 4 today as you go home. Read it around around your lunch table, as you are thankful for what you get to eat, think about what Jesus Christ endured after 40 days of fasting. But the tempter, Satan came to him and three times in three different ways, tried to appeal to Jesus' humanity, tried to tempt him to worship Satan instead of worshiping 
the Lord God. But Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It says in Matthew 4, 11, that then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. In Matthew 4, 12, it says that when Jesus heard that John, that is John the baptizer, John the Baptist, who Jesus had known his whole life, when John, who had been ministering and, and talking about the coming kingdom of God, when John had been put into prison, Matthew 4, 12, Jesus withdrew to Galilee. So Jesus kind of moved himself to a different neighborhood. And from that time on, Matthew 4, 17, Jesus began to preach this. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Church, would you read this line, Matthew 4, 17, with me? From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our morning. Hey, scientists, there's a nucleation site for you. Jesus enters the, th the scene and shakes things up. He's telling people to turn from their current lives to another one. That's what repent means. Repenting is not just saying, I'm sorry, although that is part of repenting. When God wants people to repent, he wants us to say, I'm sorry. He wants us to ask him for forgiveness. But repenting also necessarily means that we then turn away from that thing that we had to repent of. So it's not just enough for me to apologize for being a selfish jerk. God wants me to also turn away and stop being a selfish jerk in the future, right? That's repentance. I'm sorry for what I've done, and I'm going to change and move into something different in the future. Jesus says, repent. Turn away from all that stuff. Repent. Why? Well, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And by the way, I'm going to use the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven as kind of overlapping terms for a while. We're going to talk about that more these next couple weeks, and we might see that there are some little things that we can parse out from that, but kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, repent, it's come near. But what's really interesting is that this kingdom of heaven, even as Jesus was announcing it, we have to remember, and we, we experience this all the time, and you'll get it when I say it, the kingdom of heaven that's come near isn't the only kingdom at play, though. We are immersed and we live in a world of myriad little kingdoms all competing for that which is only due our Lord. You experience this all the time. It was interesting, we were talking back in the prayer room before our worship service, the, the worship team had, or before Sunday school, the worship team had gathered together and um, Jim Witter told me that my sermon last week was incredibly effective. What did I tell everybody to do last week? In the new year, I said, let's pray more. And Jim, thank you. He said, have you ever seen more people pray on TV than you did this week? If you're not a sports fan, you may have missed the story. But um, on Monday night at the Monday night football game, a young man named DeMar Hamlin, he's 24 years old, he, um, he collapsed on the football field pretty early in the game, had a, had a cardiac uh, event. They had to bring the ambulance onto the field. They were doing CPR on the field. Um, Really big, really serious. There's injuries all the time in football, but this was one of the most serious recent injuries that it looked like someone's life was on the line. So as we were talking in the, in the prayer room this morning, we were just reflecting on how many people talked about thoughts and prayers on TV this week. There were even a few people who prayed on sports networks, some very upfront coverage of team prayers before a football game yesterday as we were kind of collecting our observances. 
You know, a lot of people have been avoiding mentioning prayer on TV the past few years. Have you noticed that? I had noticed that. There's just a lot of people, it used to be one of those phrases, and it was trite, and I don't know if people really meant it when they used to say, keep us in your thoughts and prayers. You know, that was kind of a popular thing that was said in our popular culture. The last number of years, that, that prayers piece, you can't say it that way, right? But yet something about this situation this week, and if you're not a sports follower, I hope that you'll be able to understand the cultural moment. Something about this situation erased that taboo and it made it all right to talk about prayers. On Monday night, I got home and was kind of settling in thinking I'd watch a little bit of football and I I turned the game on right as it had been paused as they treated DeMar Hamlin on the field. And so I hadn't seen the play. I didn't know what happened except that there was a bad injury. And it was interesting watching the commentators try to figure out how to talk about it. What a terrible spot to be in. But they kept coming back to these three folks sitting around the table and they're asking awkward questions and and emotions and all this kind of stuff. But it was interesting for me to watch on on TV, on a national television broadcast, over and over, all of them said, we need to pray. We're praying. Please pray for this young man. And it wasn't just think about this young man or or pray however you know. It was just pray for this young man. That was interesting. Then, Then this week on ESPN's NFL Live show, some of you have seen the clips of Dan Orlovsky. He's a retired quarterback. He's a commentator now, but he was on ESPN's NFL Live Show. And ESPN is not a real conservative show. They, they'd like to be a progressive network. They're part of the whole Disney umbrella, right? Even on ESPN's NFL Live Show, Dan Orlovsky paused during the show and prayed on air for about a minute with two of the anchors at the end clearly saying amen. I mean, it was, this was a Christian prayer to God talking about, talking about faith. It was, it was a good prayer. There it was. We were remarking how that hasn't been seen on TV, at least mainstream network TV, very much in the last little while. And one of our sisters in the prayer room today said that this is possible because there's no politics around it. Everybody wants this young man to live and heal. There's nobody on the other side saying, yeah, but, right? It's, it's, well, let's pray for this young fellow. So church, here's my question. What does it say about the rest of our culture, where politics and a certain kind of correct speech does come into play, stifling the ability for people who believe in the Lord to even, in a public setting, feel comfortable saying, pray for me. What what is it about our system that leads our officials to avoid that word in so many contexts? What is it about our entertainment system that, that leads people to not want to say that until, well, there's finally one thing we can all agree on. Do you see how kingdoms clash? That's what I'm pointing at here. Do you realize this world that we live in, maybe some of us have just gotten used to it, but do you realize how kingdoms clash? If you're in a spot where if there's a microphone in front of you, you need to be careful about, well, can I say prayer now or not? My goodness. If you just can't say the word prayer, you can see how there is something going on there, right? If you have to watch any of your words that closely and be on those kinds of eggshells, What does that mean? It means there are kingdoms clashing, and Jesus knew this. That's why he said, repent, turn from all that. Don't, that's not your kingdom. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Turn towards it. Jesus understood all the messiness of the world, even though the particular mess of his time 2,000 years ago might have been a little bit different than our particular mess here today. Jesus simply said, repent, turn away. Turn away from all the stuff that hinders you. Repent. The kingdom of heaven has come near. 
And then Jesus actually started to act like a king. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, the very next little account, it says that Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, just walking out like he owned the place. He saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. So Jesus, this man who has just come, he's the son of God, but there's a lot of people who still don't understand what any of that means. He's just out walking around by the lake, and he comes up to these guys. He says in Matthew 4, 19, come, follow me. I will send you out to fish for people. He essentially says to them, repent. The kingdom of heaven has come near. It's no sin to be a fisherman. What's he telling them? He's saying, turn away from that. I want you to come and follow me. Right? There's a turning here. There's a reorientation. There's a setting their eyes on Jesus in a bit of a different way. Disruption, nucleation, perhaps. Going on from there, Matthew 4, 21, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. These later on in the scripture are called the sons of thunder. I'm not sure if that's because they were thunderous or if their father was thunderous, but they were in a boat. If their father was thunderous, they were in a boat with thunder. His name was Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called to them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Who can do that other than a king? To just walk onto the job site and say, boys, come with me and to have them follow. Imagine, now this may be different because a lot of you know me, you understand me, I hope you believe in the same kind of things that I believe and I hope you can trust what I'm about, but if I were to walk into your business tomorrow morning, those of you who are in charge of folks, maybe you're in charge of your sons, and if I were to walk in tomorrow and say, boys, come with me, you're gonna follow me for three years, dad can handle the work. Even if you loved me and trusted me and believed in the message that I was bringing, wouldn't you be just a little annoyed? Who is this guy walking? Doesn't he understand? We've got work to do. I wonder what Zebedee might have thought. doesn't record Zebedee's thoughts, and it doesn't record James and John's words. It simply says that immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Why? Because Jesus was a king, and they could see it. And when you know who the real king is, it's not that hard to turn to him. They knew that their father, even though they owed him respect, and their father, even though they may have had some kind of a business arrangement, they knew that their father, as the king of their lives, had now reached the end of his kingdom. And a new king, Jesus, had come and said, boys, follow me. This is Matthew 4, verses 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, if you want to see this story. Peter and Andrew, James and John, are now following this king. Why? Why did these men do this? These were not men who were trained to be the kind of people who just go follow Jesus around and get to work. They were not trained up until this point to necessarily live lives of, of specific career work for God. They were fishermen. They were common men. And we'll see, according to the rest of the Gospels, that there were a lot of things that they still didn't get. These were young guys at work. Jesus said, follow me. And they did. Why? Because they could see that something better was happening. They could see that there was something real going on here. They could see that this was better than what they had been living with. They could see that this kingdom was worth following or else they wouldn't have gone. Now, let me ask you, what are all the little kingdoms? And, and some of them might even be legitimate within a, perf, within a certain boundary. But what are all the little kingdoms, the little situations that would have been competing for their allegiance the way that kingdoms compete for yours? Do you think any of them had to have a second thought of like, what about the business though? We still owe money on this boat. We still owe money on these nets. And dad, dad's getting a little older. He's not going to be able to do it by himself. 
So it's not even just business, it's business with their father. What do you think, what do you think were some of the little kingdoms that were vying for their attention that might have told them to stay in the boat? What were some of the cultural understandings that these young Jewish men would have been living under about doing work, about being a traveling disciple, about working for their father? There is a lot that these men left behind as they repented and turned toward Jesus, as they left behind their old life for a time and turned to Jesus. You can see how this could cause a clash of kingdoms, right? What is the choice that they are making? They are saying that Jesus will be their king doesn't mean that they burn the boats, burn the nets, and tell dad to take a walk. No, there's, there's still, there's still a, a, a modicum of respect that is intended, and it's not as if that job was a bad job. Jesus is simply saying, I am the king of this now near kingdom. Follow me. And when the king says, follow me, what does a follower do? They follow. Four of my first jobs were on dairy farms. Um, two of them were close enough that I could ride my bike there. And then as I was a little older and able to drive, I was able to get jobs a little further away. But I, I had jobs with, um, with four different men on four different dairy farms, all good men, men that treated me really well from a business standpoint, but they also taught me a lot because I didn't grow up around cows and all that. I just grew up in the country. So when I was 13, 14, 15 years old, I was learning to milk cows and take care of calves and, and, and feed and, and, and clean up a barn, some of those things. That, and it was really interesting. Every single fellow, even though they all lived in the same county, they all lived within a couple miles of each other, and they were all milking cows. It's not like one of them had pigs and another one was building airplanes. All milking cows. They all had different ways of doing things. That was the thing that was, because for most of these guys, I worked for a summer or two and then kind of moved on. It was really interesting for me to learn, you know, what it was like, work for this fellow, well, you do it this way, and he likes it done that way. And, this, and then the other fellow's like, well, this way, and you know, you don't have to sweep up quite as much over there. How many of you have recognized that kind of thing in your professional life, that even as you maybe do the same kind of job, different places have different standards, right? Do you know what I did? With every new boss that I had and every new barn that I stepped into and every cow that I was near, do you know what I did? Uh, and I, I don't know why I did this. Maybe I was taught this or maybe I, but I just said, okay. All right. I didn't say, but you know what they do over at Kurt's farm? I didn't do that. I was, I was smart enough to know that that would not have gone well in those days. But I, I just kind of relearned the job each place I went. Why? Well, because he's the king. That, that little barn was his kingdom, right? And he wasn't telling me to do anything that was contrary to God's word. So, so all of the instructions that I got about exactly how to use this equipment, exactly how to treat those animals, exactly in that area, this is what we do here. I just said, okay, why? Because he's the boss. He's the boss. He's the king. If I want a job here, this is how it works. I'm going to get in line or else he's going to say, all right, take off. I'll find another 14-year-old moron to do my work I think a lot of us are used to that kind of thing, right? Unless you, get to be, unless you get to be the boss at your job, all of us are under kings and queens of this earth. And just in how we do, and that's fine, right? Most of the time, that's fine because they're just telling us how to do a job or they're guiding us. This is, this is what it's going to look like in our organization. 
Most of those kings and queens don't ever try to put themselves in the place of the Lord, where now they demand all of this out of every part of our life. And, this is, and most of these kings and queens, they're, they're wise enough and they're humble enough that they are not demanding us to do things contrary to God's clear instruction. And so we follow those little kings and those little queens because they have their kingdoms, right? right? If I step into Ryan King, <laughs> if I step into Ryan King's classroom at Lancaster Mennonite, high school. I don't just get to walk in and say, all right, guys, let me teach you this today about potatoes. That's not my kingdom. I have no authority there. I have no right to be there, and I have no rule there. That's Mr. King's class. And in that, have you ever said, I'm the teacher, and this guy, oh, okay. (laughs) Have any of you ever said, because I'm the parent? Have any of you ever said that? I've said that in the last day. (laughs) Why? Because my house, along with my wife, we share rulership over a kingdom. In my house, I'm the king, and Melanie is the queen. And together, we make sure, we make sure that there's a certain way that things go. Now, our little kingdom at 293 Barnsley Road is geared towards pointing everyone to Jesus. That's our mission. And that's what, but, but make no doubt, you will not come into my house and change how things are run. You won't. You do not have, I am the king there. You get it? And there are all these kingdoms at play in our lives all the time. And many times when it comes to family stuff and when it comes to business stuff, especially small and local businesses, a lot of times these things work just fine with our faith. But what happens when you're part of a kingdom that says, I know what God says and I know what the Bible says but you're going to do it my way. What happens then? How do you interact with that kingdom? How do you interact with that person who thinks that they are that kind of a king or that kind of a queen or that kind of authority? Well, frankly, that's one of the reasons why there are so many different kinds of Christian churches within a stone's throw of where we are right now. Because for the last 500 years, and especially in the last 100 years, and really coming into focus in the last 30 years, there is so much that we are all deciding about how do we relate to these kingdoms around us. We know that God says, repent, turn away from all your sin, turn away from your old way of life and everything that's contrary to God. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. But then we have people that say, yeah, but what do we do about this law? And so this church says, well, we're, we're fine following that. We can be a witness there and we can still, but others say, no, we're pulling out of that because now it's too corrupt and, and we've got to be our own little society. And that's happened over and over and over for the last 2,000 years. And and for the last 500 years, it's happened over and over since America was founded. And it still continues to happen today. How many people do you know who have changed from one church to another? And maybe you're one of them because of what some other kingdom said in the last three years. You get this, right? But oh, the stress and the challenge as we figure out how to live this out. We all say together, yes, Jesus, I want to turn to you and I want to be part of this kingdom of heaven. I want to live as if you are indeed my king. I want to live as if your kingdom has come and I want to help to be a witness to your kingdom. But then things can get sticky as we try to figure out, well, what does it mean? Because every kingdom has three things. Every kingdom has a king. Every kingdom has subjects either because they've been forced to or they've chosen to follow. And every king has a reign, a set of standards, statutes, rules, and laws that the subjects will follow because the king has spoken. How do we work that out? 
as the reigns of some of these earthly kingdoms seem to come in conflict, certainly with each other, but also with our faith in God. How do we do that? Well, welcome to January and February at Waterway Church. We're going to talk through this stuff. We're going to poke at some of this stuff. We're going to see it. So what some of our spiritual ancestors have done in the past, and if those, if those ways of relating, either by engaging to be a witness but really careful, or, or maybe we go in all the way and say, we're just fine with this kind of kingdom here on earth, or maybe we step all the way out and say, nope, no more. I'm out. How do we do that? What's that look like? Well, let's think, talk, and pray together over these next couple weeks. But for today, I want to leave you with this. I want to leave you with this. We have a King Jesus who is coming, and he said later on in Matthew, in Matthew 11, he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the kind of king that Jesus is asking us to follow when he asks us to follow him. Not the kind of king that's just constantly raising taxes, constantly stressing this, constantly pulling you out of that, and constantly asking you to compromise your faith. No, Jesus is, Jesus is a king who offers good things. What do we do with this? Here's a couple ideas and a couple things I'd like you to think about, especially as maybe you go home today and read about the temptation of Christ in Matthew 4, and maybe you get really interested and read the teaching of Christ and what the kingdom of God looked like in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Here are a couple things that we need to do with this. First of all, I think that we need to make Jesus our king by turning from whatever other kingdoms or kings have been tempting us. Church, who is demanding your allegiance right now? Who besides God is suggesting that their particular reign has to mark all of your life? Who is demanding that you turn from or ignore the Lord? That's a little king demanding that you get in line with their little reign in their little kingdom. And church, Jesus invites us to repent and turn away from that for the kingdom of heaven is near. For some of us, it means that we need to make Jesus our king by stepping down from thinking that we are the king or the queen of our whole lives. Some of us have been living as if I'll decide. Oh, I read what the Bible says and I see what God wants, but I don't like that. I'm doing my thing. Well, let me tell you, that's part of what Jesus is telling us to repent of when he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. By the way, those of you who think that you are in charge, those of you whose name is not king, but you think that you are the king, how is that working for you anyway? Is it bringing you relief? Is it bringing you peace? Is it bringing you joy to be the God of your world? So we need to make Jesus our king by turning from whatever kingdoms are tempting us. We need to make Jesus our king by, by making sure that we are not putting ourselves into the seat of king. We should make Jesus our king by learning and living his reign. As I said, there's some fantastic instruction. You want to have a great conversation today. You read Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. It'll take you 10 minutes to read it out loud together as a family. Read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 and really think about what it would mean to live like that. Those are not new questions being lifted up, but these are important questions for us to ask. We make Jesus our king by aligning with all of Jesus, all of his teachings, not just the stuff that we like. I was listening to a guy named Tim Mackey this week. He works with the Bible Project. I, like, I, like, I, I just got kind of a new exposure to him this week, and, and I liked what he said here about this part of Matthew chapter 4. He suggested this. He said, there are some people that are really excited about a social justice Jesus. 
Some people like the ultimate sexual purity Jesus. Other people love the environmental Jesus or the financial legacy Jesus. Some people really align with generous Jesus. Other people think that forgiving Jesus, and some people really just like the be nice Jesus. Some people try to follow the perfect family Jesus. But what Mackey suggests and what I believe is absolutely true is that that's not really what a disciple does. We don't get to just look at slices of Jesus' teaching and say, I really like that, so I'm in with Jesus for this, but not that. No, it's all or nothing. Jesus is so amazing. Jesus is such a perfect king. Jesus' burden is so light and his joy is so full that we ought to be able to say, yeah, I'm in for all of it. And even the stuff that I don't like, I'm going to come alongside because I recognize that he is the king and he knows what I need. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So church, today the invitation is before you. Jesus kind of stated it as a command to those people around him. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. But I like the way he invited those fishermen. He just said, come follow me. And that's the invitation for you now. To repent from whatever is behind you, whatever things have tripped you up, whatever kingdoms that you've aligned with, you need to step away from, or maybe there are just some things that you've gotten a little out of balance. Jesus says, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Church, the invitation is still before us. So we're going to take a couple of weeks to sort out what it actually means to live as people of the kingdom of God instead of being identified by any other kingdom. We're going to study what it means to have God as our ultimate king. We're going to think about how we are called to participate with or reject all of the other little kings that tempt us to follow them too closely. But today, the question is before us. Will you repent and be part of God's kingdom? Will you receive him as king? Church, repent. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Can we pray? Lord, you are a good and loving father. As was discussed today in, in Sunday school, Lord, you are gracious and you are, you are quick to forgive. But Lord, we also know that yours, yours is a heart of wrath for those who turn against you. And so Lord, as our king, we recognize that you have the right to set things as they need to be and punish those who turn against you. And so our Lord, our Father, our King, we come before you now adoring you and giving you praise for all that you are and how you hold it in perfect wholeness together. Lord, you are always right. You are always holy. You are always just. You are always pure. You are always loving, never compromised. Lord, we praise you and adore you. And Lord, we confess that there have been many times in our lives where we've turned aside to one way or the other, where we've allowed our faith to be contaminated or diluted by the demands of the kings and queens around us. Lord, there have been times where we've just, we've just left you behind and we've gone wholeheartedly into following somebody else or even ourselves. Lord, please forgive us. We repent of that. Lord, forgive us. We have been wrong. And even though you will never be removed from your kingly throne, we have acted as if you were never there to begin with. Lord, forgive us, for we have been wrong. Thank you, God, for being quick to forgive. I thank you, Lord, that the offer is still before us to repent. That same offer that Jesus gave 2,000 years ago, the, the offer to repent for the kingdom of heaven is, is near. God, thank you that we can still turn to you. Lord, please work in our hearts and in whatever way you work, 
please work in our hearts to, to point us towards yourself, to, to, make us, um, to make us the kind of people that will respond with a yes. Lord, do your work. And Lord, we declare now that we will follow you. We will follow you. Thank you, Lord, for bringing your kingdom so near. We pray in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. Church, will you stand and sing our closing song with us today? This is Never Once. This talks about how our King has held us up and why it is.